Any idea what the next book is going to be? You know, I was thinking about that, and um, the one that comes to mind is Heavy by Kaise Lehman. But then I also thought about um, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. I was like, hmm, that's a good one. Now reading uh, the Nipsey Hussle book, um, Marathon Continues, I thought about the spook who sat by the door. He references it in his music. And he referenced it, I think mm-hmm. he mentioned it in the book too. So I bought it. Um, but, you know, heavy, heavy sounds good too. If you read it and bring it back to us, you are listening to The Dap Project. I am your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Stallworth. The Dap Project is a podcast that explores politics and culture through Dap, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. As we bounce back from 2020, we're asking, how do we come back better? How do we come back bolder? We are talking with folks who are doing the work, the freedom dreaming work. That is what we do. As always, I want to shout out our listeners for checking for this podcast. Folks have been subscribing to the website and newsletter, tapping in on our IG page, and getting involved with TDP Be Reading for our monthly book talks. The DAP Project sincerely appreciates you. Now, let's get into the news. Rhonda, what's the latest? Recently, Aaron asked me to watch this movie, Two Distant Strangers. You may have heard of it. In this film, a young Black guy relives a stressful interaction with the police. Stressful in some scenes, triggering and assaulting in others. Think Groundhog Day, but with a racist police and a chokehold. That's why I say triggering for sure, especially during this week with the Chauvin trial proceeding and continued state-sanctioned murder. Life already feels in some ways like a replay of last year and the years before that. So actually, I didn't make it through the entire film. I did wonder, has anything changed? And the answer in some measure is yes. So my news this week follows up on two issues that we've discussed in previous episodes. You may have missed these updates, so I want to bring them back so we're aware. First, Governor Pritzker of Illinois signed criminal justice reform legislation that, among other provisions, will end cash bail by January of 2023. Cash bail essentially criminalizes poverty by requiring the accused to post bail or be detained in jail and disproportionately impacts Black people without evidence that cash bail is effective in guaranteeing an appearance before the court. Please listen to our conversation with Vincent Sutherland for a full discussion about the racism embedded within the cash bail system. Second, Governor Northam of Virginia has repealed capital punishment as of March 24th, 2021. Virginia is the 23rd state in the United States to abolish the death penalty and the first state in the South to do so. We know that a disproportionate number of black people have been subjected to the death penalty, even when their guilt was not certain and tragically when their innocence was proven after their death. And further, why are we killing people anyway? Quoted in The Intercept, 
Michael Stone, Executive Director of Virginians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, attributed this victory to the wave of protests that followed the killing of George Floyd. I share this news for anyone who needs to hear that protesting, working in coalition, and applying radical imagination to deeply entrenched inequities can lead to the world we want to see. And by anyone, I mean me. Thank you for sharing that news. And thank you for taking my recommendation to check out Two Distant Strangers, the now Oscar-nominated short film starring Joy Badass, one of my favorite rappers that is under age 30. I completely understand why you didn't get through the film, Rhonda. Triggering moments have prevented me from rewatching a number of movies, TV shows, social media posts, and news clips. Two Distant Strangers is still highly recommended and is available on Netflix. I'm hoping the film gets some props from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That way we'll get more fuel to the country's focus on outlawing racism and police brutality. Speaking of racism, I had a very nuanced and slightly jolting experience with racism last week. Just about two years ago, for context of the story, myself, along with my wife and two daughters, moved to a fairly affluent neighborhood. Before the move, I made sure to update my driver's license to reflect my new address. The begrudged trip to the DMV was high priority for me, frankly, out of fear. Fear that a neighbor would mistake my six foot three, 260 pound, long lock having black self for a threat, a criminal, a thug. That fear has remained dormant for the most part. But last week, the recent encounter with someone on my block woke it up a bit. It was a brisk morning. I was dressed in sweatpants, a t-shirt, a zip-up hoodie, all from Lululemon, and my Henry mask, just for context. This was on my walk to school with my daughters to drop them off. On my walk back home, I noticed a woman about 50 yards up the block coming down the street as I made my way up. As we got closer to one another, I noticed she had her mask on as well, so there was no need for an awkward street crossing to avoid that Rona. After a few more steps, I noticed she looked up from her phone and saw me approaching. At that moment of eye contact, she immediately looked down and away and came to a hesitated stop. We're still a good 30 yards apart at this point, and so there was no real threat of us having any physical contact. I smirked, shook my head, took seven or eight more steps, and then turned to walk up the steps to my front door. I turned and looked back at her, and she resumed her walk, not giving me any further eye contact. This moment kind of reminded me of the first time I saw Malik get on the elevator with Kristen in John Singleton's movie, Higher Learning. She avoided eye contact and clutched her purse like she had three or four Bitcoins in that bag. If you do not know what I'm talking about, add Higher Learning to your watch list. It's available on Hulu and Amazon Prime, among other outlets. And y'all can Google Bitcoin if you're not hip. I was 18 when I saw Higher Learning. The scene in the movie highlighted a blatant act of racism against the character that Omar Epps was playing. My moment walking up the street, heading to my house, some 26 years after Higher Learning was produced, again, is very nuanced, yet absolutely tinged with racism. In 2008, while sitting in a race and racism class at Teachers College, I came to find out from Professor Daryl Wing Sue that this hesitation of the white female pedestrian making her way down my block can be described as a microaggression. 
A microaggression is some shit you know is racist, but our hegemonic society forces you to second guess what you know is true. A few days after this microaggression, on my walk home, Dante Wright was shot dead by a police officer. He was murdered in what I took away as a premeditated act. We all know the details. We all know Dante should not be dead. We all know that we live in a country that is sick from its centuries of hate and racism towards black people and other people of color. The reason for pause and footsteps from the woman walking down my block and the police officer's unwillingness to properly de-escalate the encounter that led to a cold-blooded murder are related to the same sickness of racism. That pause from the pedestrian on my block would not have happened if I were white. No gun or taser would have been pulled by that police officer if Dante Wright was an unarmed 20-year-old white male may not have been pulled if he were armed, as we've seen in other YouTube videos and posts on social media. We all know that the change Sam Cooke has been referencing for nearly six decades is incredibly overdue. We have to keep pushing nonetheless. The DAP project will do its part to push the needle towards justice and healing. Please learn about additional ways you can join the fight for justice by visiting the links in our show's notes and in our newsletter. I will end with a quote from the great Bayard Rustin. He says, let us be enraged about injustice, but let us not be destroyed by it. That's my reflection for the hour. Stay strong, my friends. This week, we have the pleasure of talking with Marcus Batchelor, a native of Washington, D.C., Marcus ran his first campaign for Advisory Neighborhood Commission at age 21, followed by a successful campaign to serve as the Ward 8 representative to the State Board of Education, also in DC. In 2020, Marcus joined a field of over 20 candidates to run for an at-large seat on the DC City Council. Ultimately, in that race, it went to a different candidate but we talk about the wins that he still achieved in that effort. Marcus currently serves as Deputy Director for Leadership Programs at People for the American Way. He joins us to talk about the power of progressive politics, why he remains hopeful after a year like 2020, and shares his favorite taco spot. Now he dodges our question about his favorite go-go band, but we ain't mad at that at all. Let's get to it. I am an activist. Um, I'm an advocate. Uh, I have spent a lot of time working both in government and the nonprofit space to make systems work better for folks, uh, to fill gaps where the systems refuse to, um, and to demand change uh, from, from those who hold power. Um, and just to create our own change uh, in our in our local communities. So I'm really grateful to have uh, been able to do so much of the work I've been able to do, um, and most of all, do that work mostly uh, in the community that raised me. I'm Marcus Batchelor. I am uh, a son of DC, a native Washingtonian, uh, born and raised in Congress Heights. I uh, am the former uh, Vice President and Ward 8 Representative on the DC State Board of Education. Uh, and I currently work 
uh, as the deputy director for leadership programs at a national nonprofit called People for the American Way. So I get to work uh, every day with young progressive leaders across the country. What is your earliest memory of death? Wow. Um, you know, it's it's gotta be, you know, I think when you pass through the neighborhood, right? Like I like I said, I grew up in Congress Heights, um, which um, is still like 93% black. So you can imagine in the heyday of Chocolate City was black, black, right? Um, and so, you know, DAP is, was, you know, just uh, the way you, you past folks on the street, right? It was the way you greeted each other. It was, um, you know, uh, the way me and my friends greeted each other at Congress Heights Rec, right? At MLK Elementary, right? Getting off the bus at Anacostia Station. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, to, right, the point of this podcast, you know, it, uh, it really did, right, bring us together. It was a sign of unity, of acknowledgement, right, without having to say much, um, but the simple gesture, right, created community for me. Um, so you mentioned that you're a kid from Congress Heights. It's like one of yeah. your taglines. What's a <laughs> defining element of growing up in Congress Heights? Yeah, you know, um, Congress Heights um, is, for folks who live outside of DC, right, probably the farthest from Congress that you can get, <laughs> but but uh, but in so many ways, is you know, was the center of my world, and I think where I also just got early education and early inspiration that led me to both the path I decided to take, you know, the values um, that I developed, you know, my sense of community, um, you know, Congress Heights is where. Martin Luther King Avenue and Malcolm X Avenue intersect. Um, it was where I got to go to a barber shop named after Martin Luther King and go to an elementary school named after Martin Luther King. Uh, um, you know, it's where, um, you know, it, like I said, it was just the, the center of my world. Um, it was, you know, where my family raised me, but also where my community nurtured me. Um, uh, and it's still, it's still my home today. Ward 8 in general, Congress Heights, Anacostia is, you know, now um, because of displacement and gentrification in other parts of the city. So in so many ways, the center of Black D.C. So I'm really proud to be a, a son of Congress Heights, but I'm so proud that I, I get to continue to be a, a Congress Heights neighbor. When you think about your mentors and influences, uh, Black men that have influenced and mentored you, uh, can you think of when you first had your first Black male teacher? Again, the good thing about growing up in Congress Heights is, is that um, I had probably the inverse experience of a lot of my peers around the city. Uh, I actually had all Black teachers until I was in the fourth grade. Uh, and so, but my first Black male teacher uh, was Mr. Hill. He was my art teacher uh, at um, Martin Luther King Elementary. Um, and he just retired actually after 20 plus years uh, in the system. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think uh, Mr. Hill was just, you know, a defining presence of my experience. He wasn't one of my primary teachers, but right going to his class where we got to right, be creative, explore our creativity, but also in a space where, you know, we all felt supported and loved. I think that was really a quintessential 
uh, part of that experience. And I think, you know, something I still remember Mr. Hill for. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I, I think about my first teacher was probably eighth grade and he was actually a football coach. But I think the school administration said that we, we need some black men in the classroom. So they made him a history teacher. But prior to yeah. that, uh, none for me. And, and after that, I don't, I don't think I had very many until college. But to have a black man as your art teacher, uh, I'd imagine that has some real influence. Un, 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 unrecognized influence and in how you see people and you see black men. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and the good, and the good thing is there wasn't any shortage, right. Of, of black male presence throughout my coming up, right. You know, my, my, whether it was my dad who passed away when I was 10, you know, my, or my grandfather who was a presence in my early life. But I even think about, and I've, you know, I've told this story on multiple occasions, just about black men in my community, you know, the veteran who lived up the street from me, Mr. Morehan, who uh, would stop me, you know, at least once a week and hand me a paper bag uh, full of books that I could take home and read um, and uh, flew the American flag. He was a veteran, flew the American flag on my birthday, you know, because he said I'd be something special one day. Deacon Matthews, who lived around the block from me, who took us, who took all the kids in the neighborhood during spring break to vacation Bible study, uh, um, vacation Bible school, uh, so that, you know, one, we could get away from the neighborhood for a little while, but it also kind of brought us closer together, gave us fun things to do while also getting closer to our faith. And then I think, you know, even when I was getting uh, engaged in politics early, you know, I think of folks like uh, Philip Pinnell and William Lockridge and James Bunn um, and, and, you know, all of the, you know, Nate Bennett Fleming, all of these folks who um, both brought me in, but also gave me the room to lead. Um, you know, that was, um, you know, a, uh, you know, uh, I'm, you know, unmatched, you know, influence in my life in terms of what I became and then really uh, pushed me in the direction of, of what I ended up doing in life. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, the good thing is I've, I've had the, the good fortune of having so many, you know, strong black male figures in my life um, who, you know, pointed me in the right direction and showed me the way. Um, and to, to the point, a lot of uh, strong black women too. <laughs> Well, yes, <laughs> that's definitely Since you have a view of the national landscape. Do you think that there is something um, particularly cultivating about growing up in a predominantly black city and seeing black leadership that encourages and inspires young people to continue in that tradition that may not be present in environments that are predominantly white. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, even in my early um, years of getting engaged um, in politics and in activism, right, sometimes the, the longest bridge to cross for people of color wanting to get engaged uh, is seeing themselves as a part of it. And I, you know, I didn't, um, because of, you know, because I grew up in a, in a Black city run by Black people, you know, that was a bridge I didn't have to kind of imagine, right? It was, it was in front of me. 
Um, I could see myself and people who looked like me as a part of the process and as significant uh, uh, voices um, of change in our community. And one of the people I didn't mention, but clearly had um, a tremendous influence on me was uh, our mayor for life, Marion Barry, who for most of my life was either my mayor or my council member. Um, and so, you know, one of the earliest memories I have of politics in general was, you know, Marion Barry having a cookout across the street from my house when he was running um, maybe the first time uh, uh, for Ward 8 council member back in 2004. Um, you know, and I remember getting a T-shirt, you know, from from the rally and grabbing a hot dog. And that's kind of the the totality of the experience. But but, you know, but the fact that that stuck with me, I think, just speaks to the fact that, you know, being able to see it right in front of you um, and, and being able to see yourself as a part of it just has such a tremendous uh, influence. Yeah. We know, though, that having black leadership doesn't necessarily guarantee, though, an equitable experience from a That's number right. of perspectives. Um, the professor Kianga Yamada Taylor writes about this a lot in her book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, that sometimes black leaders don't necessarily distribute wealth equitably, safety, and a number of things. So let's turn to one of the more pressing and obvious problems that we've had in DC of gentrification. Yeah. Aaron, you wanna take it over? Yeah, gentrification is well documented, the DC experience, some of the most intense gentrification in the nation, um, uh, where some 20,000 black residents were displaced. Well, one of your critiques of gentrification in DC is that displacement is not an unexpected or unavoidable outcome, but rather a failure of uh, public policy. Um, as a non-native Washingtonian, I, uh, one of the main cities I think of outside of DC is New Orleans uh, when it comes to gentrification. And some uh, the aftermath of Katrina really kind of accelerated gentrification with land grabs and things of that nature. Um, when you think of your city, our city, DC, what policies do you see have failed our communities um, when it comes to gentrification? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the problem is both historic and present. You know, I, you know, when I think of the historical impacts, right, the fact that D.C. for decades was a majority Black city without an elected government run by a Southern white racist power structure, um, you know, that, that for sure had a profound impact on um, <clears throat> Black political power from the community level taking root. Um, but even after you know, home rule when even strong voices for change, right? When you think about just, when you think about the first DC council, for instance, a majority of those folks were um, members of the black power struggle, right? They were a part of black nationalists and, and you know, black organizing um, factions across the city that had been doing things to uplift the black community without, with the absence of a black power structure and they became in so many ways the founding mothers and fathers of a home rule government the unfortunate part was that uh at the same time they were gaining power uh, folks like ronald reagan were also gaining power right instituting trickle-down economics that gutted cities that introduced scourges like you know the crack cocaine epidemic and then you know uh 
as a result, uh, the epidemic of, of murder and gun violence in our city that uh, they gutted right black communities in so many ways and in very obvious ways gutted black leadership uh, in the city. So you know that by the time I was coming of age, right? I mean, but by the time I was five or six years old, um, you know, we had a black government in the city that was powerless to do anything, both politically and economically. For, for black people. Um, and then you had kind of the introduction of kind of the self-described uh, new black leaders that kind of had a colorblind approach to governance who said that I'm not gonna be, you know, the pro-black, you know, uh, black nationalist elected leaders of the past. I'm just gonna be a good manager. And then they started saying things, well, we're gonna rebuild our economy by attracting 100,000 new residents back into our city in the next decade without saying who those people would be and how they would impact the people who were already here. And in so many ways, right, not caring, right, attracting industry to the city, um, you know, which we for sure desperately needed, right, uh, you know, attracting new residents to the city without building <clears throat> any stability or even building an economic floor for folks who had struggled through the bad times in the city. Um, and we didn't, we didn't make the investments to make sure uh, that they were able to prosper um, and grow as the city grew. And so, you know, a decade and a half, two decades down the line, you see the result, um, a black population, um, by and large, a native black population in DC uh, that has not been able to maintain an economic floor that has disproportionately been excluded from things like quality public education and job training, access to, to good paying jobs with a living wage. Um, uh, and uh, I think an ambivalence of leadership to really do anything urgent about it. Um, that as long as the city was growing and we were cutting ribbons on stadiums and uh, and ballparks and new luxury condos, that that was the sign of progress in the city, not how those folks who were left furthest behind were doing um, as a result of growing prosperity. Um, Is it possible to approach politics with a colorblind mindset, given that um, economics fall so starkly along color lines? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that. And the good thing is that um, that, it, that seeing um, policy through an equity lens, both economic and racial, is now becoming more of a standard, right, than it was a decade ago, that, um, that activists um, and even a new age of political leadership um, are beginning to realize that to to really address deep uh, rooted inequalities that you have to look at it from uh, a racial equity lens um, and also realize that economic opportunity and economic uh, justice also means racial justice, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the good thing is we're beginning to see that um, and that's beginning to become more of the conventional wisdom. Um, but, you know, I think that there was a time, right, and this also um, uh, has to come with the acknowledgement that there is also um, a rift in class 
internal to the black community, right? That has impacted these politics as well. Um, but, you know, now we're coming to a time where we realize, you know, that, that we have to do those things that will, that will lift all of us up, right? That if we take care of those left furthest behind that all boats will rise with the tide, right? That we can't do one thing for one community without doing it for the other. Um, because, uh, you know, what affects one will eventually and always, right, affect uh, the other. Um, so, you know, I think the good thing is we're, we're beginning to see that in a different way, but, you know, in, in a, you know, in the 80s where it was kind of, you know, everybody, uh, are, you know, is their own captain of industry or whether it was, you know, the 2000s where we just got to do something just to build up, right, no matter kind of the human consequence of it. I think we're beginning to move beyond that and say, well, wait a minute, how do we, how do we do things that will that will make this city um, uh, a place where everybody can find their space, where everybody can um, can eke out their part, where everybody has equal opportunity to to thrive. Thinking of, of finding their space, um, the barbershop you mentioned uh, growing up was that the Martin Luther King barbershop. Yep, Martin Luther King Community <laughs> Barbershop. That's right. Is it, is it still there? It is. So, so actually, the the funny thing is, they actually uh, had to move out of their location that I've been going to since I was little uh, over the course of the pandemic. Um, the unfortunate part is clearly, right, barbershops got hit hard as a result of the pandemic. But uh, the barbershop is also across the street from the quickly growing. Uh, St. Elizabeth's campus in Congress Heights. And so the landlord also in the middle of the pandemic wanted to raise the rent. So they had to find a new space and thank goodness they were able to find some space not too far from their present location. But, you know, I think that that's the, you know, that's the reality for a lot of uh, black owned businesses uh, in the city right now. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing that they were able to relocate not too far from where they originally were. I know yeah. there's a, a barbershop, um, our students did a gentrification walk. Uh, this is back in 2012-ish. And there's a barbershop on 7th Street that closed back around that time due to higher rents and lack of customers. You know, and I think yeah. the barbershops are like cultural hubs. And when they leave a community, you know, a, a chunk of that community's culture uh, goes along with it. Uh, so, that, that, yeah. That's right. And and also, right, I, I'm glad they could find a, a location close to because uh, finding a new barber is a, is, a, is a struggle. I've had the same barber since I was three years old. So the fact that 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 at least stayed stayed the same uh, during all of this upheaval <laughs> was yeah. uh, was a blessing for me, for sure. We have yeah. a running list of things that we call real black man issues and finding a new barber. <laughs> A new barber finding, a, finding a, new a good barber and then having to find a new barber right so finding a good barber yeah. is a struggle um and then when you find one you just you just hope and pray that <laughs> that you can right. stick with them <laughs> that yeah. you can stick with that person in the last year we saw all of those issues uh conflated the yeah. economic the uh the housing the health the education everything was upended and intensified we know that some people were experiencing these uh these struggles 
prior to COVID, but COVID, of course, intensified all these issues. A common refrain was that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. um, but a more pointed observation is that we're in this together, but we're experiencing it differently. Mm -hmm. So how did you experience 2020? Yeah, so um, uh, I experienced it in pretty stark reality. Um, in September 2019, um, uh, as you know, I announced my candidacy for an at-large seat on the DC Council um, and clearly thought I was going to run a drastically different race uh, than, I, than I ended up um, having to, right? Right as soon as we got into the full swing of the campaign, the curtain kind of came down and you know, it was COVID in March. It was George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by that summer, right? It was, you know, uh, by that fall, it was kind of the assault on voting rights and, and all of these things leading up to the election. Um, and so, you know, at the same time as all of us were trying to work through, right, the social and emotional and sometimes economic and medical impacts of, uh of 2020 and of, of the pandemic and all of these things. Um, I also had to, in pretty real time, try to figure out how we were gonna solve all of them. Um, you, know, you know, it was my hope that by this point, right, that I would be on the council really working to help all of us recover, but also was learning in real time, just like everybody else, the impacts uh, that, that they were having. But, you know, I think growing up in a community that I did, right, your instinct on how it would impact your community as opposed to somebody else's was pretty evident in my mind early on, right, that if we were, um, if we had a uh, virus that was passing through the air um, um, and you know I like and folks like me lived in communities where the hospital has never worked the way it was supposed to where a healthcare network was near non-existent where people have to right take three buses to get to a grocery store where most folks are you know working jobs at restaurants and our bus drivers and our grocery clerks and, you know, are still having to go to work even though the world shuts down, right? I, I think it was pretty evident that the impacts were gonna be disproportionate. Um, um, and then, at, you know, at the same time, uh, we were also, you know, going to the streets demanding not just justice for folks who had been murdered by the police, but a fundamental reimagination of what public safety looks like. Um, and, and so all of those were, um, were tough exercises, right? Um, you know, you, you start, you know, I, you know, anybody who's run for office think you kind of start a campaign and that, you know, what you believe at the beginning will kind of shape the race. Um, and in so many ways, what was happening to us was shaping the race, was shaping, you know, the, our evolving thoughts about how we would solve these big issues. Um, and in so many ways, I think radicalized our campaign, right? To say that, you know, the things we were talking about at the beginning, we can go even farther, right? That this moment lends us an opportunity to go even farther and build coalitions that we didn't think we could bring together before. Um, and so, you know, 2020 was an experience, right? For me, um, tough for sure. But, you know, I think to your point uh, at the beginning of this conversation also steal my faith um, that a moment like this could also uh, 
could also show us uh, in so many amazing ways what's possible if we decide to actually treat bus drivers and grocery work and grocery store workers and home health aides like my mom as essential, right? And treat them that way. Um, that, you know, if we listen to, right, the activists on the streets and people from communities like mine that are both over-policed but also still fundamentally unsafe, that we could actually reimagine a public safety system that worked for everybody. That, you know, if we saw the disproportionate economic impact um, that was happening to folks who were falling out of the workforce, not being able to work, and decided that we could create a system that would actually build an economic floor for our poorest residents, that that would, ha that, that would pay dividends uh, for not just individuals, but for our economic prosperity as a city, as a country over time. Um, and so we were able to really challenge um, ourselves and really promote a lot of those issues uh, as a result. So, so 2020, I think, for me, I think just like everybody else was transformative, kind of both physically, but also, um, you know, uh, transformative in the way I thought about issues and the way we approached it. So there's a lot of optimism about coming back better. I think we're still optimistic about, oh. <laughs> about, coming, <laughs> about coming back better. Um, you mentioned policing. So let's kind of get into policing a little bit. Uh, here in DC, like many cities, we saw um, an over, overly aggressive response to protests this past summer. We saw um, beating of protesters. Then we also saw that some protesters were not beaten. Um, our chief, Newsham, ultimately decided to take his skills and talents elsewhere. And now Robert Conti. <laughs> All right, LeBron. Indeed. Indeed, right. <laughs> that was so nice of me. Uh, <laughs> has decided to go where God led him. And now um, Robert Conti has been appointed the interim police chief. What should his priorities be for the city, specifically for Ward 8 that you, know, that you noted is over-policed but still fundamentally unsafe? So how should Conti approach his job? I won't call it policing because I, yeah. my politics would say we don't need that, but how would you say he needs to approach his job in Ward 8? Yeah, I mean, for sure, fundamentally differently than his predecessor. You know, I think the the thing that I think, at least personally, eventually drove uh, Chief Newsham out of the city was uh, his unwillingness um, or his inability to rise to the moment, right? Not to not understand that we were in a moment where it was important for him to listen and to challenge his own assumptions and to guide his department in a direction that was responsive to the folks he was serving. Um, you know, folks were taken to the streets and, right, hundreds of people signed up to testify at the DC police hearing at the council to lay out right, a vision of what they thought their systems of public safety should look like. And by and large, right, he rebuffed those um, in, uh, in some ways, the most insulting ways that he could. Um, and, um, and so my hope is that 
Chief Conti, who is from this city, who grew up in War 7, right, who spent time in the department, uh, will understand that now is the time uh, for, for those systems to fundamentally change, right, to, um, to be open to figuring out, right, how um, you, right, change the department or, or maybe work himself out of a job, right? I think that that, right, that's the moment uh, that we're in right now. And I'm optimistic to your point, right? I'm optimistic that he will do that, right? And, and you know, and I know that I and so many other people will also work to hold him accountable um, to, to do that, right? Um, you know, to your point, right, a, a black face doesn't fundamentally change things on, on, on its own. Um, but my hope is that it helps, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. We don't and know. So, right. We don't know. Like, you know, they say that hope is nice, but hope is not a strategy. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, 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 exactly. So, so, I, but again, you know, um, but we also know that, that unfortunately, right, in, in so many ways, the buck also doesn't stop at the top of the department, right? That it's going to take, you know, the mayor leaning into those conversations in real and genuine ways. It's going to take the council leaning into those conversations in real and genuine ways that don't just kind of check a box for public engagement, but that actually, put the resources behind not just having the conversations, but when we come up with these recommendations, actually implementing them, right? Um, and and that is, uh, that's going to be the real challenge, right? I think, you know, it, it was a challenge getting us to this point, right, where folks are um, willing to have the conversation, what we do with it, I think is going to be the next challenge. Yeah, we know that one way that you would hope for DC to come back better is uh, for it to come back as a state. Yes. Uh, at some point. Yeah. Uh, when that happens, optimistically speaking, uh, how will Washingtonians experience uh, that new representation? Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, hyper locally, um, it changes the game just like partial home rule did right back in the 70s. Um, you know, it uh, it will give um residents of the district, including its black plurality, um, political power, uh, more political power and political voice, not just locally, right? Not just more control over things like our courts and our national guard and, uh, and, uh, and our local laws to the extent that they won't be interfered with by uh, members of Congress who we didn't elect. Um, but a plurality black and a majority minority state also lends uh, a unique voice to the national conversation. And DC within itself will, will uh, I think in so many ways, uh, be able to trailblaze these conversations with their influence and voice at the national level, right? If you think about you know, the elevation of black leadership, right? That is a hallmark of DC thinking about how folks like Mary and Barry were the first, right, members of the Black Power movement to actually gain political power to be mayors of major cities and, and council members and be able to wield, you know, not just influence in community, but wield dollars and budgets to, to implement um, uh, uh, programs that would help folks uh, lift themselves up. Um, you know, I think that will, that will change 
how the whole country sees the possibility in the face of, of leadership and power. Um, but even more than that, you know, DC has also been a leader nationally already on things like, um, you know, marriage equality and um, harm reduction when it comes to the drug epidemic, when it you know comes to programs like needle exchange and, and all of those things that we trailblazed long before other states did, um, you know, um, that, uh, you know, even if, you know, our political, you know, our political leadership stays consistent, right? We have, you know, the first black woman, right? To ever lead a state, right? That is, that, that automatically, right? By virtue of statehood, right? That automatically changes, right? Not just our view of what's possible, but the country's view of what's possible. And so I think in so many ways that we've already, um, done, but also in the ways, in the direction we're moving towards, we can't influence, right, uh, what our politics looks like uh, nationally, I think, for, for years to come and make that progress come faster, in, you know, uh, even though, you know, uh, our national conversation tends to believe at this point that those changes will come slower, you know. Uh, do you believe there's any voter apathy uh, in D.C.? with us not being a state? Um, I think, so yeah, I mean, I think that there are folks who um, live in the city who are frustrated by our lack of, uh, of national influence, right? Uh, that is evident. But I think just like every community across the country, we have to do a better job at building our civic life. But um, but DC, you know, um, again, unique has a, a really unique civic life, right? Um, there's no state in the, in the country that could say it's consistently been led by Black people or been led as long as it's it has, you know, cumulatively uh, by women. Um, you know, the fact that you know, if our proportion of our council, for instance, stayed consistent, that we would have only the second, maybe third state in the country to have a majority uh, of women in the state legislature, right? That, you know, those things, um, um, I think, again, would, would fundamentally change the game. But I think uh, our political culture um, is still vibrant, right? I think, you know, despite our lack of national representation, our, our local political life is still vi vibrant. And I think because of our lack of political representation, um, the vibrancy of our political culture has also just expanded, right? When, you know, injustice moves people, right? And I don't think there, there, there are very few, um, you know, uh, municipalities or states across the country who've experienced a more consistent, right, lack of, of justice and equality than the residents of the district. And for sure that has driven our politics and, and driven the way we see um, local involvement. Um, but yeah, but you know, I, I think we can all do better, right? I, you know, I ran, uh, you know, for the Board of Education and for the council because I thought that, that we could bring more people in who were excluded from our conversation, right? Residents in Ward 8, um, for instance, residents east of the Anacostia River um, are still underrepresented at the polls. Um, and so we still have a lot of work to do 
for our most marginalized residents to feel and see themselves as a part of the process and then go wield that power um, when it's time. Um, but, I, but I think statehood can only, um, can only elevate that, right? It only gives people more reason to be engaged as opposed to less. You mentioned that um, you, you know, have progressive views and you want to engage people who have been ignored. Um, my question is, uh, some people say that progressive candidates go too far, like you and at Lazare when uh-huh. we're going too far. What does that mean when, what do you hear when someone says, well, I think that's just too far. Your views are just a little too far left. But you're saying, well, I just want people to have a living wage and right. I want them to have access to health care and right. I'd like them to, oh, I don't know, not get shot when they right. walk home at night right. By, right. by a cop. So how do you reconcile those two thoughts? Um, you know, I just think, you know, people have to be brought along sometimes uh, and, um, you know, uh, sometimes too far for some isn't far enough for others. Right. And um which is one of the reasons that, you know, I, as a, as a, as someone who grew up in this city, first and foremost, but also someone who lives and grew up east of the Anacostia River, wanted to run for a citywide seat, right, to, to elevate the issues that seem to most acutely impact communities like mine into a citywide conversation, right? I was able to go into living rooms in Colonial Village and, right, and, and, you know, into, right, some of the more, most affluent, you know, uh, communities in our city and say, look, we've got to raise the economic floor. And that means giving a guaranteed income to our poorest residents. It means, right, taxing uh, our wealthiest residents, right, uh, and, and requiring them to pay their fair share. It means, um, you know, it, it means having the hard conversation um, in our it, across the city um, that says that you don't feel safe in Tinley Town or in Friendship Heights because you believe you have the city's best police patrols. It's because you have opportunity. It's because you have an economic base. It's because your schools are good. It's because you have transportation networks that that work. It, you know, it's because you have a sense of hope and optimism um, that doesn't exist, right, in, in other communities or exists um, uh, not enough. Um, and, and that if we're going to build that, right, that that means we have to make, one, tough decisions as a city and decide to actually put our $16 billion budget to work on those priorities. Um, and it means stepping outside of ourselves, outside of our, our bubbles, outside of our silos, and putting ourselves in other people's shoes um, and realizing that if my neighbor in uh, Congress Heights is doing better, then I'm going to do better as a result of that. And the good thing was, right, that began to resonate with people. Um, and while I think there are for sure people who think some of my views uh, you, you know, went too far, um, you know, when you look at it on paper um, and, you know, by the donations we were able to attract by, you know, the, the diversity of folks who signed up to volunteer and to lend their voice, um, you know, geographically, 
you know, we had the most diverse, right, support of any candidate in the race, right? Now, our numbers could have been better, but when it came to the spread, right, of our support across the city, there's no candidate that performed uh, better than me when it came to broad-based support, right? We had donations from every ward in the city, from every community in the city. We had, you know, we, we didn't you know, chop the city up and decide, well, we're only going to campaign in four, five, seven, and eight, you know, and, and ignore everybody else because we don't think we can win there. We campaign. we started 14 months before the election because we committed to campaign everywhere and have that conversation everywhere. And we also set out to challenge the city to say that it has been a decade since we've had citywide uh, leadership on the council who's had to go home to communities east of the river, who had to go home to a food desert, right? Two communities that are both over-policed and also inherently unsafe, who, you know, uh, that council, a council member who is a tenant, right? And rents and understands what, right? Tenants rights and protections for those who rent really means in reality. Um, that had a mom who was taking the bus back and forth during a pandemic to go take care of other folks and had to buy PPE out of pocket and didn't have a union to protect her, who had a 94-year-old grandmother who's owned a home for 60 years, but is now living three blocks from a multi-billion dollar development and is now getting letters in her mailbox every week from folks trying to buy her house up. Right, right. The, you know, the, it, it was about both the experience, but also realizing that uh, that lending that type of perspective to a citywide conversation was important to our to our collective growth. Um, and and, you know, those issues, even though they seemed extreme at the time, are resonating. Right. Who would have thought that, you know, when I decided to be the only candidate in the race to support a guaranteed income program uh, that a member of the council would now be talking about, would now be asking the mayor for money to implement a guaranteed income program right in DC. Um, so, so, you know, I think, you know, what's, what's extreme in one moment is it becomes the status quo in the next, but I think it, it requires good leaders to, 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 dream big, right? Um, and to say, you know, what would our communities look like without the presence of a police department, right? What would it look like for us to say our poorest residents should just get cash, right? Without any requirements and just let them spend it as all of us do, right? Uh, and, and let's see how that works. Yeah, I think when people say that we're, we've gone too far, your views are too progressive, it just makes me wonder, well, what do you really value? What, what do we want for other people that you don't have for you that you actually need and they need as well? So it seems to be this like this disconnect between, well, it's good for me and I earned it, but you all need to go ahead and earn it. However, you all can go ahead and figure it out. So voter engagement is something that we've been discussing over the past you know, year, two years, et cetera, and particularly black male voter engagement. There's been a lot of conversation about that. Typically, you know, the, a, a person who is considered civically active will vote in November and go on about their business. And the next time November rolls around, they'll vote again. But voter engagement can 
look different. And many mm -hmm. are saying that actually it should look different and politicians shouldn't just come around every November. So what would a person who wants to be civically engaged do now, it's March, to remain um, engaged? How do you remain engaged as a voter when you don't have to technically go to the polls now for an election? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, uh, <clears throat> election day, um, you know, is, is I wanted to say half the battle, but it's not even half of it, right? I think, you know, you, you, um, uh, you elect a you elect a person on one Tuesday in November, and then you give them four years to screw it up, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, you know, the main point is that you know election day is just the beginning, holding folks accountable, and and working right for the change that you hoped for on election day is the really important work, um, you know, and it, and it's something you know, that I said on my first day in office on the State Board of Education four years ago that, you know, if folks went home, right, after they elected me, all of these things that we said we wanted to do, you know, when we were running just won't get done, right? If you don't show up to the school board meetings and fight for, right, more equitable school funding and, right, a school rating system that that doesn't, right, disproportionately, um, uh, drive down, right, the outcomes of, of schools that serve Black and Brown students and students at risk, right? If we, you know, want, uh, you know, a public safety system to change that the real work gets done after election day. And, and so it's about, you know, showing up to the community meetings. It's about, you know, testifying at the city council, you know, when you can. Um, but it's also, you know, Civic, you know, being civically engaged doesn't also mean that you have to be, you know, a, a politician, but it means you have to do, you know, what you can, where you are, when you can, right? You know, sometimes, you know, it means volunteering at a food pantry or, you know, um, you know, making sure that, you know, your neighbor's also engaged or that, you know, you're organizing your block to make sure that the potholes get filled and, the um, you know, and the trash gets picked up. Sometimes it means just getting on the 311 app and reporting it yourself, right? There, there, there's a spectrum of ways that, that folks can be involved. But, you know, what I try to, you know, impress on folks is that every little bit counts, right? That it, it really takes all of us to make this system work, that, that, you know, politics and our systems of government are human institutions and that if we don't engage in them, if we don't lean into them, then they don't work the way that they're supposed to. And so when folks say, you know, I'm not going to go vote or I'm not going to go to that meeting or I'm not going to get engaged um, because, you know, it doesn't work anyway. Well, it doesn't work because we don't work it, right? Um, but every time uh, we decide to work it, right, sometimes we don't get the exact outcome we thought of. But in the end, it always makes a difference. After this uh, historic year, the past 12, 13 months, have you been able to further align the work that you do uh, with your values? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting time for me, for sure. Um, you know, like I said, you know, 2020, um, I was both running a campaign, but also, um, um, ending out my term on the state board of education and obviously after november's election i was 
uh, for the first time since I was 21, not an elected official anymore. And so I think uh, in so many ways, as people were reevaluating kind of their place in movements and their place in their communities um, and how they could be useful, I was also doing the same thing. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, I'm still working on it, but I'm beginning to kind of figure out, you know, what is kind of next. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to now um, expand on my work at People for the American Way, not only, you know, supporting great causes, moving the ball forward for voting rights and racial and economic equality and all of these things, both locally and nationally, but I'm also still able to do the work of supporting a new crop of elected leaders and activists across the country who are trying to do that, right, in places like Charlottesville and Ferguson and Chicago and, you know, um, Seattle and, yeah. you know, uh, Boulder, right? The, you know, people who are really trying to, to, uh, to, to make a difference. And, you know, locally also still committed to, to those fights that, you know, that, that we fought for on the trail, right? Trying to figure out how we move the ball forward on ending mayoral control of schools to give communities more voice in the way our schools are run, how we right, fundamentally change our systems of public safety, how we, you know, um, build political power in our most marginalized communities and not just turn that into votes on election day, but turn that into meaningful um, uh, uh engagement and, and, and making them a meaningful part of decision making every day after that right those are still uh fights that i'm really excited to be a part of Let, let's yeah. let's back up just a little bit i'm going yeah. to use one of aaron's favorite phrases let's unpack that so how did it feel when you weren't an elected official after having served yeah. as an elected official you know from let's just say like seven eight nine years or so yeah, no, it's uh, it's weird. Um, it's uh, you know, uh, folks don't call you as much, right? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> you uh, you don't get as many emails. Uh, you know, you're not you know you're not going to as many events, right? The 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 pace of it all seems to slow down a little bit. And after right six years, I spent two as an advisor, neighborhood commissioner, four on the state board of education. You know, sometimes that stillness is a little disconcerting, right? You're just like. Uh, all right, so now I feel lazy, right? Now I, you know, even though it's like, you know, people around me are like, it's okay, right? Like you ran for office for 14 months while also being elected, while also serving for six years. It's okay to slow down a little bit, but then you, you know, sometimes you stop feeling useful, right? And I've had those days where, you know, uh, in full transparency, you just don't feel useful anymore. Um, and then you're like, all right, well, when can I run again so I can feel useful? And then you realize, right, that, that, you know, there are people doing great, that, that you worked alongside people who weren't elected, who were doing transformative work, um, uh, regardless of that, and that there's a space for everybody, and that, you know, um, that there are good elected officials to support, right? I'm excited that, that Carlene Reed is now the Ward 8 representative on the State Board of Education. I'm excited about the work that she's going to do, right? I'm excited that you know, even though I would have liked to win that Christina Henderson, right, is is on the council um, and, and promoting tremendous work, you know, around maternal health and, right, uh, expanding the fairness of our elections. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I'm excited to support her in that work. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's disconcerting 
one of your tweets recently. Now you tweeted this, okay? I, I was not snooping uh, <laughs> your journal. You tweeted this uh, on March 21st. Okay. You spoke to that issue. You said, use me, God, show me how to take who I am, who I want to be, what I can do and use it for a purpose greater than myself. Yeah. What answers have you received from that tweet? Yeah, well, you know, since then, um, you know, I, I've gotten um, a promotion at work, right? I've gotten this great new role, like I said, to begin expanding my work on, you know, on, you know to develop the, the leadership of other young progressive leaders across the country. And I, I'm really excited about that. Um, uh, and, you know, some of the answers I'm still waiting on, but, but I, but I've also, <laughs> but, 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 I, but, but, but the, but the ask, right, is also, um, the, the ask is also freeing, right, in a sense too, yeah. because when you put it up, right, you just, you know, that eventually something will come down, um, but, but I'm excited about the space that I occupy right now, um, and the work that I'm able to do, um, and, and there's not a shortage of work uh, to do. And so I know, um, you know, where I'm supposed to be, you know, I, I will be um, um, in every aspect of the work. Um, uh, but, but I've never been failed in that, right? So that, that prayer wasn't just a prayer of the 21st is something that I've, I've asked, you know, uh, God for, um, for a long time. Um, and consistently, I've been put in spaces where I felt like I've been making a contribution and where I felt good about my work. And so, you know, the end of one thing is just the beginning of the other. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm beginning to learn that um, in, uh, in more real ways than, than I, uh, than I originally imagined. <laughs> Are you going to run again for office? You're young. You're sprightly. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
fight against what I thought were tremendous headwinds, you know, for people who I thought should automatically get it. Right. Um, you know, I think that there was a growing cynicism in me that people just wouldn't get it right, that that we just had to kind of knock those people over and, and, and take it. But, you know, going around the city, you know, being able to talk to such a diverse array of people, you realize how fundamentally people just want the same thing. Um, and that, you know, if if you're able to bring folks together um, in a um, in a way that kind of brings down, you know, the pretenses of, of politics and geography um, that, you know, that that people can can get together and, and get things done. You know, I think I've always believed that um, to an extent, but I think, you know, the, the deep divides that we saw in our national politics right over the last four years, I think drives people to believe that we're just irrevocably divided right, um, that, that, that there's no coming together. But I believe that, the, and while I believe that there's hard work to do ahead of us to, to bring folks together, to realize that, you know, and that, and that that job is harder now because by virtue of social media and uh, cable television, fundamentally we're, and, you know, segregation, we're able to fundamentally just live in our own worlds. But I think the more we work to, to break those barriers down and put each other, you know, in, in one another's shoes, um, that, that we can, you know, uh, really come together and that people aren't as um, selfish and self-concerned um, as, as sometimes, you know, it seems. So you came out of that hellscape of a year more <laughs> optimistic. That is wonderful. I celebrate yeah. that. I am encouraged yeah. by that. But yeah, if I said yeah. you correctly, you're like, wait, people actually aren't as divided. It's as if maybe the Anacostia wasn't the divisive river that it may have yeah. been perceived to, to have been yeah. all these years. Yeah. So, okay, um, what music is bringing you joy with all this hopey, yeah. feel, angy optimism that you got going on over there? What's the soundtrack to oh. that? Yeah, um, you know, I think during the campaign, I tried to, you know, uh, you know, my my uh, playlist was, you know, social justice and social upliftment. You know, I think. I probably played uh, Someday We'll All Be Free by Donny Hathaway more times than any other song <laughs> last year. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm, uh, I think lately I'm also starting to get into uh, a, a funky mood, right? Some um, like, I'm trying to think of some of the songs I've listened to uh, earlier today. Um, Slide by Slave, Lost Ones by Lauren Hill. Um, oh, okay. That's okay. Old school. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm definitely an old soul. So, to the point of having kids, right? My mom had me two weeks before her 37th birthday, mm, um, okay. and and so you know, I grew up in a, in a in a house where the generational gap was a little wider <laughs> than than most, and so uh, and so the soundtrack of my life is a little more dated than, than some of my friends. <laughs> hey, Refined. You can say you heard Luther on the radio. So let me ask you, uh, this is a tough question and somewhat controversial. Uh, Rare Essence or Junkyard Band? Oh man, that is, that is tough. I know Um, I'm terrible. 
I, I, I like RE. I'll say, but I'll say Junkyard because I more consistently listen to Junkyard than R than RE. But they're they're both. Um, I'm not choosing sides, and, and I'll say that because I also got a broad array of support from the GoGo community during my last no. race uh, by, both, by, by members of both Junkyard and Rare Essence. So, uh, so I like them both. <laughs> That's not an answer, but I respect the game. That's the Absolutely. perfect answer. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> respect right. the game. All right, as a lover of food which I am, uh, and everyone is. Uh, any restaurants that uh, you've really been appreciating lately? Um, wow. Um, so I've been, since I've been home, uh, working from home, even though I work 15 feet from my refrigerator, I still order out way too much. Um, and so I've been trying to cut down, but you know, I'm always uh, down for some tacos. Um, I am a, uh, a taco snob though. Um, and so, uh, I don't eat everybody's tacos, but, uh, but there is, uh, El Bebe and Navy Yard is pretty good. I got, uh, introduced to that by my mentee, but I also go to this place, uh, called Taqueria La Placita, uh, which is a little outside of DC, um, off of Kenilworth, uh, in, in Bladensburg, uh, which is really good. Um, and uh, always go to Hong Kong Delight for the best chicken wings and mumbo sauce in the city. Uh, that is at MLK and Esther Place in the Congress Heights. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think: is there is there anything else that tops my list? You know, I think I think those those are those are my mainstays. You know, um, those are my mainstays. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much for uh, this enlightening conversation. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Be well, Marcus. Thank you so much. Thank Take you. care. That's our episode this week. Sincere thank you to the kid from Congress Heights, Marcus Bachelor, for joining us to rap about progressive politics and sharing his vision for an inclusive DC. Yes. Thank you, Marcus. We definitely appreciate you and the work you're doing for the district. Coming up with the DAP Project is our next book talk near the end of this month. Did you know TDP is reading the marathon Don't Stop the Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle by Rob Kenner? Rhonda, how's your reading coming along? I'm on track and I'm really digging how Kenner is highlighting Nipsey's early work. And so I'll be getting into those Lawson Boys mixtapes. Some dope music indeed. I encourage it. Buy his book at your local independent bookstore and join us on Instagram Live on Sunday, April 25th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our third DEP Project book talk, because TDP be reading. On the socials, I tweet randomnalia at educate underscore Rhonda. I post pics of my auntie, sister, friend, and et cetera life on Instagram at Rhonda Henderson, and talk about my love for books, books, and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on the gram. Aaron Harvey, are you on the socials? Yes, like most folks, I spend too much time on the socials. You can find me on IG at Aaron.Stallworth, posting all things going on in my life with my, me, my family, and the latest happenings in the world. And, and please do pup. good old Dougie, the pandemic pup, after Dougie Fresh or short for Frederick Douglass, depending on the crowd I'm introducing him to. Catch the DAP Project on IG as well at the.dap.project.
We're also on Twitter at DAP underscore projects. Thank you for rocking with us this week. Resistance is a highway with many lanes, and I hope you find yours. Take care, folks. <laughs>